morning. Sure glad that you're here. Uh, real quick, maybe you um, weren't here a couple of weeks ago. Maybe you've been in and out. Maybe you were and just couldn't make the meeting. Um, had our first interest uh, meeting for Israel two weekends ago. I would have followed it up last weekend, but Chris and I were traveling and it spoke at a marriage conference in North Carolina, so I want to do it this week. Um, we are going back to Israel for 2017, September 2nd uh, through the 13th, and we'd love, love, love to have you go. It's a personal invitation. So let me give you the two reasons why I think you should go. One, if you're a believer, right? So everybody should go because it's just wonderful to see what's going on over there in that part of the world and to see the only democracy in that area. I think it's an important issue, but spiritually speaking, if you read your Bible right now, believe it or not, the way God created our minds is that when we read something, we see pictures. We don't see words, we see pictures. It's the way the mind thinks. So that when you read something in the Bible, you see a picture of it. It may be right, it may be wrong, you don't really know. It's just a picture. It's how you learn to think. So in a way, it's like black and white and analog. Go to Israel, and here is the promise, man. It'll be high definition, 4K, ultra OLED, for those who are in touch. You will read your Bible in a completely different way. There's something about standing in the place where the event took place. We read it, and you're standing there, and you see it for yourself. It does something for your faith. But even that aside, let me tell you the real reason you should go. It's a spiritual journey. It's not a vacation. Uh, it's, it's not a, hey, let's go and get massages in the land of the Bible. It literally is. It's a spiritual journey. And somewhere along that journey, people connect with God in a foundational, fundamental incredible way and what I found to be true this will be our 13th trip we've taken almost a thousand people from our church now the fruit that remains in people's lives long term is worth all the effort that we go through to put a trip together it really is I would encourage you with this if you ever just uh, had a desire in your heart to go look I think God uses that seed right there to bring things about in our life Here's what you could do today in the foyer, the orange wall. You heard Marcus talk about it. It's real obvious. We put the information there. This year, we're going to limit it to one bus. Last year, I took a lot of people, um, two buses, and it's great to do it that way, but it takes away from the intimacy of a trip. So we're going to limit it to one bus. It's 50 people, and including staff that's going. I have about 25 right now, so I've got room for 25 more. So it's a personal invitation. We'd love to have you go. If you'd like to pick up the information, it's out there in the foyer at the orange wall, uh, including the price and the application. If you read through it and you're confused, call the office. My admin's name is Janet. Janet, she knows more about it than I do, to be honest with you. Can answer any question that you, uh, that you might have. But we'd love to have you go and uh, check it out and see, pray about it, see what God has for you. Okay, enough of that. Get your notes and let's go. Um, a study by Harvard University, that Harvard Harvard's a secular institution. I think a lot of where Harvard's at today, probably we would find ourselves on the other side of a lot of issues. But here's true. When Harvard was started, it was started as a Christian institution. Did you know that? It was actually a divinity school. There's still one that's there today, but it's on the lesser side of what they do. Now it's more of a secular institution. Harvard is a brilliant place to go to school, hard to get into. If you graduate with a Harvard education, man, it can open a lot of doors to you. Because of Harvard's reputation and the people that have gone there, Harvard has an endowment that is almost second to none, man. They can fund about anything they want to fund. They can last through about anything that's difficult. Amazing. Here's what Harvard is able to do better than most places. When they fund a study, they can fund it in a way that CSU and CU couldn't even come close to doing. Let me give you an example. 
Harvard is in the middle of a 75-year study on adult development. Can you imagine a study that lasted 75 years? When I was in school and every professor would cite a different study, a long one would be two years. An average one probably went four or five weeks over a group of 1,000 people. Here's what Harvard did trying to figure out over the long term. We all make a lot of decisions about what makes us happy and how, how, how a person finds a fulfilling life. But Harvard decided, let's follow a group of people from the time they're, they're young to the time they're old. Let's fully fund it. Uh, over this study, get this right here, four different people have had to head up this study because in the almost 80 years that's gone on, the other three have died along the way. They started with 725 boys right at the beginning of World War II. There's only 64 of the men left today. And they're going to finish it all up until the last one passes away. So here's what they did. They took this group of men as they grew up. Uh, they came from all different aspects of life. Some were wealthy and some were poor. Uh, a couple of presidents came out of this study. Uh, a couple of people became alcoholics. Uh, some went to the top of the latter as far as success in life, and some ended up at the bottom. Uh, some, it's secular, some were homosexual, uh, some were married, some were divorced. It took all aspects of life, and it just followed this group of men all the way through their lives. And every once in a while, they'd send a questionnaire or meet with them in person to ask them questions, and these men agreed to do this. And so they were able to track over a long period of time what actually makes a person happy over a long period of time. These three things stood out to them over the long period that were really interesting, and you'll see how it connects to our message today. So after a 70-year time period, 75 actually, these three things were found to be true in a person's life. Number one, social connections are really good for us physically and mentally. Social connections are good for us physically and mentally. The reason I cite this study is that when I find things in the secular that line up with the things that God's been saying for thousands and thousands of years, I love it when the world and God can come together. Yes or no? God said a long time ago, it's not good for people to be alone. Yes or no? Here, Harvard finds out that one of the best things that can happen in a person's life is that you have a social connection. Now, by the way, they do, they do point this out. It's not the quantity of relationships, but the quality of relationships that makes a difference. Because, because you can sit in a room with four or 500 people and feel all alone. Yes or no? And you could be in a marriage with just two people and be totally connected and totally fulfilled. But let's go the opposite. You could be in a marriage with another person and feel totally alone. And you could be in a room with a lot of people and have really good relationships and feel totally like this is my family. Correct? So it's not the quality or the quantity. It's the quality of the relationship. And so over the long period of time, asking these men, why do you feel fulfilled? What makes you happy? The first thing they found is that social connections are really good for us. Here's the second thing they found to be true. Loneliness kills us. Loneliness kills us. The men in their 50s that had really poor relationships, that were in bad marriages, that were in relationships where they just simply weren't feeling connected or felt very alone in life, their level and rate of mortality was more than twice as high as the people who had good relationships in their life. So here's what that tells us. Good relationships actually can help you to live longer. And last but not least, and I think this one's the most important one, when these men got into their 80s, they asked them to look back over their life, and they said to them, what really made you happy? Now, they began that question in the beginning when they were young. They asked them all, what do you think will make you happy in life? What do you think those guys said when they were young? 
Say it. Money. Every one of them said, if I could be rich, I'd be happy. I just saw a study on millennials, people graduating college right now, asked them the same question. What would make you happy? What do you think they said? Living in my parents' basement. No, here's what they said. I'm just kidding. They said money. They, come on. <laughs> they said money. If I could make enough money, I'd be happy. Okay, a lot of times in life what we do is we take true isms. And we think because somebody said it, it must be true. But if you could follow a person all the way through their life and they made a lot of money, or they didn't, but they got to the end and you asked them, are you happy and what made you happy? Here's what they all said made them happy. It wasn't what they did for a living. It wasn't what their status in society was. It wasn't how much money they made. Here's what they said made them happy. At the end of my life, the tight relationships I have with the people around me are where my happiness came from. Now, I'm not in my 80s, I'm in my 50s, but I can tell you this right now. The thing that brings me the most joy in my life is the relationships that I have, yes or no? However, the thing that brings me the most grief in my life, you get it, so I'm going to come over here to this side. What can bring you the most grief in life? Relationships. Our series is called Detox, and we've talked about detoxing from certain things in our life. Today, we're going to talk about detoxing from offense. The number one killer of a relationship is offense. Here's a good way to remember it. The Broncos need an offense. You don't. Oh, come on, I worked on that hard for like a week to put that little sentence together right there. You may think it's stupid, but you'll remember that right there. The Broncos need one, but you don't. I know there's a difference between the two. Detox from offense. Mark chapter 6. Uh, it's a little story about Jesus. Jesus, who was perfect, experienced people being offended with him in life. And what that should tell us right off the bat is no matter how hard you try, offense comes, doesn't it? You have to really work hard in relationships to keep offense out of it. And so as we get into this, I kind of want you to see how it works. So I'm going to use this. Uh, it's a true story, but listen to me. I'm going to use Jesus' true story as a metaphor for how relationships work in our life. And I'm going to show you at one point in a relationship, it's all good. And then it can be, you're very bad. And then it can leave us very stuck. And I want to show you how it works. So I'll read this to you and I'll comment. It's Mark chapter 6. It says, Jesus left there. Uh, there. Let me describe there to you. Um, a woman who had internally bled for 12 years. The Bible said she had gone to every doctor she could find, spent all of her money, and she didn't get better. She grew worse. So for 12 years, this woman is hemorrhaging. And she tells herself, if I could just touch Jesus, I'll be made well. Jesus just uh, is walking through a crowd. Literally, the Bible says so many people, he can't even raise his arms. Can you imagine? And this woman makes her way through the crowd, telling herself, if I could just touch him, I'll be whole. She just reaches out and brushes the hem of his garment. She doesn't even touch his hand. And the Bible says that Jesus perceived power left his body. So he turned around and asked, who touched me? And Peter says, like everybody, they're all crowded around you. <laughs> and Jesus keeps looking because he knows somebody came with faith and got healed. And he spots the woman and she falls down before him. And he tells her, your faith has made you whole. That's there. Then a synagogue ruler's daughter has died. And Jesus raises her from the dead. Jesus messes up funerals better than anybody else in history, man. Love that. 
So the miraculous is where there is. Jesus came from doing the miraculous. So we picked the story up. Jesus left the miraculous and decided to go back to his hometown. And he's accompanied by his friends, his disciples. When the Sabbath came, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were, what's the word? One more time, you're going to teach yourself. They were Isn't that the way all relationships start out is there's an amazing factor. You like the person. People that are friends don't hate each other. People that get along in life don't have things not in common. We find reasons to get along. I like, you're amazing because you cheer for the Broncos. You're amazing because you go to the same church I do. You're amazing because you like the politics I like. I'm just throwing that in right now in our, you see how I weave it in the, yeah, I know what I'm doing. We find people to be amazing on the initial side of things. We just get along, and that's what happened here. These people meet Jesus. They see what he's able to do. Man, they love what he's saying. They're amazed at him, but watch the progression. So when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. And here's the progression of their thinking. Where did this man get these things? He must be teaching things that are so amazing to them, they've never heard it before. It's not just teaching like reading a book and talking about what's in the book. He's talking about here's what it actually means and here's how you can do it and it'll change your life. They're amazed by that. And then this sentence, what's this wisdom that has been given to him? He must have been so smart that if they threw a problem at him, he could tell them, no, look, it just seems that you're stuck, but here's what you do to get unstuck. And they must have found great revelation in his ability, his wisdom. And they're amazed at his wisdom. And then this sentence, what are these remarkable miracles that he's performing? Can you imagine while he's teaching how awesome it must have been? But if you happen to be blind, Jesus could walk by, touch you, and you see. Or if you're deaf, he touches you and you hear. Or if you can't walk, he grabs you and you stand up. How powerful of a teacher he must have been to not only teach it, but to demonstrate it. You would think that's amazing. And now it gets weird. Because all these amazing things have happened. And emotionally and mentally, here's where they go with Jesus. They say, isn't this the carpenter? First, they're amazed at him. But now intellectually, they're like, hey, isn't this the guy whose dad built tables and he built our table? Uh, Then they go this way. Isn't this Mary's son? And the brothers of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. In fact, uh, Bill, don't you live next door to Simon? I mean, he's right here among us. Aren't his sisters here with us? I think I work with one. And they took, what's the word? Over here, they took. How do you go from being amazed with someone to taking offense with someone? Those silly Jews. Them's us, folks. Offense works exactly that way. At one point, it's all good with somebody. And then offense finds its way into relationship, and now you're saying something's wrong with you. Yes, and at one point it was all good, but now it's all bad. And here's where to leave you. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, amongst his own relatives, and in his own home. And then this, this might be one of the saddest sentences in Scripture. And God, Jesus, God could not do any miracles there 
except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And now the tables have turned and Jesus is amazed. And Jesus is amazed at their what? Their lack of faith. So it begins with it's all good, and then it's you're bad, and when it's all said and done, they're stuck. And I'll just point this out to you real quick. Not even God can do anything in your life when you get stuck unless you decide you want to be unstuck. Did you just hear what I said? So if you've got a pen, you might want to fill it in. The first one just simply is we're good. We are good. All relationships start with that premise and that idea. If they're going the right direction, it all starts out, we feel good. We are good. Let me give you three things the Bible says about relationships. It's not the only three things. It's just three things I picked out. They're just real simple things to remember. The natural state of your relationships is found in this truth from the book of Amos. Look at this right here. Do two people walk together unless they first agree to do so. When you find a relationship with somebody, the reason you like them is because there's agreement between the two of you to like each other. It's all good between us. We have commonalities. We have things that we agree on, things that we see the future about, things that we're excited about, things that we can get along, things that we laugh about. It's all good. Two people walk together not because they hate each other, but because they like each other. They agree to do so. Then the Bible says, here's how good it is when relationships are right in our life. Look at this, Psalms 133, verse 1, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Yes or no? When relationships are right, everything in life seems to go right. Yes or no? So let me go the opposite way. When relationships break down, doesn't it seem like it affects everything in life? Let me use marriage for a moment. I've said this before, if you're not married, it doesn't matter, because I'll point out it's just a relationship issue. When marriage is good, there's nothing like it. And here's what I found to be true as a pastor. When people struggle in marriage, there's nothing like it. It affects everything in life. Relationships are exactly that way. When everything's good, it just seems like even your spiritual life goes good. But when relationships fall down and when you have trouble in relationships, it seems to mess up unity. And when it messes up unity, it messes up spiritually how you feel. Let me ask you this question. If the Bible is saying, man, there is power in unity, there's blessing in unity, how good and pleasant it is when people walk together in unity, if relationships are that powerful in our life, doesn't it make sense then that this wonderful thing God wants for us, the devil prowls right on the outside looking for a way to bring that thing down so that he can mess you up? Relationships are so important. They're so powerful. God uses them in such profound ways in our life. And if the enemy can find a way to bring an offense in, man, it can bring an entire relationship down. The Apostle Peter writes it this way. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. And then this sentence. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to what? Okay, how does he do that? The devil doesn't have real teeth or real jaws, and he's not a lion. He acts like a lion. He's looking for someone not paying attention so that he can then get you. And when you don't guard a relationship by keeping a fence out of it, the devil will find a way to bring a fence to your relationship. And it's funny, because two people who at one time love each other a whole lot can hate each other later on. And what we don't see, what we look at, is a fence, we see the issue, and we don't realize that behind a fence is a spirit waiting to get you. 
Offense has a spirit with it. The problem with offense is that when an offense happens, we think we're right. I'm right. You're wrong. I'm right. And when you go down that path, here's what you think. I am right. Maybe you are. Here's what I've learned. You can be dead right in a relationship. You're right, but you kill everybody because you're right. What did you gain? So let me give you a demonstration on, uh, on offense. The second one just simply is it begins, we're good, but then it becomes, you're bad, they take offense. Let me teach you the difference between big and little offenses. Big and little offenses. I need two volunteers. So you want to help me, John? I need one more. Someone who want to help me? You don't have to do anything big. You've you got to be kind of strong. Are you kind of strong? You're like, no, not, not me. You are. Come on. No. She's strong enough? You're sure? She can take you? Okay. Come here. Let's do it. Come here. If you go, if you go right over to the side, there's steps. You can come right up, or you can just jump right up on the platform right there. Look at you. Okay. Come here. You're in the right place. I just separate a little bit. Okay, John, I'm going to start with you. Uh, John, this is your life on display, and uh, you get a chance to decide what you're going to fill your life with. Now, you can fill it with good things, and you can fill it with good relationships, and you can fill it with joy and love and God's blessing, or you can fill your life with offense. Either way, you've got to carry something around, and here's what I would say to you. If you decide to carry offense around, offense gets really heavy. Now, most believers know this to be true, and so they try to keep big offenses out, but we're not always good at that, and so one or two big offenses usually happens in our life that we can't quite get over. And they usually get into our life. And so, John, I'm going to use these two big offenses. Got it? Yep. I'm actually favoring you. You don't know how much I'm favoring you right now. Okay. Uh, John, these two big offenses weigh about 25 pounds. Is it heavy? A little. A little bit. I'm going to ask you in about five minutes. How heavy it is. Because here's the problem with big offenses. They weigh a lot. And even though we know they hurt us, a lot of times our own pride won't let that stuff go. So we just hold on to it and we go through life. Our hands are full and our back is weighed down. And we find ourselves overburdened because of big offenses. But most people, John, most people, dude, like a rock. Look at you. Most people, yeah, hold it any way you want to. Most people are aware that's true, but most of us put up with one or two things. Um, you, this is your life. And you get to decide what you want to put in it, and let's say that you're better than John. You look better than John. What is it? Do you know? Sugar. Sugar's just little tiny crystals, right? There's not much to it. Uh, little offense works like this. How heavy is that? Not heavy. It's not too bad, right? So you could take a few more little offenses. Do you know a difference? No. Feels the same? Mm-hmm. Here, here's the deal. Most of us are on guard about big offenses, and we'll only let maybe one or two in our whole life really get us. But we're not on our guard with little offenses. We think to ourselves, we can handle it. And here's what's funny. It tastes sweet initially. But here's what the devil knows. If he could get you to buy into little offenses, offenses are like cancer and they'll multiply overnight. 
need you to hold that out just a little bit. You okay? Yeah. That's 25, nope, no switching. <laughs> That's 25 pounds of little offenses. Now I want you to think, what's heavier? 25 pounds of big offenses or 25 pounds of little offenses? They weigh the same. What'd you say? They weigh the same. They weigh the same, right? I'm going to submit to you a spiritual principle. This one is heavier long-term because it doesn't stay in one area of your life. If the devil knows you're an easily offended person, everything in life will begin to offend you. And it will multiply. And then it won't just be that thing that happened, but the way people drive will offend you. The way your wife eats her cereal will offend you. The way your pastor gets up in your business will offend you. Easily offended people have this one common denominator. Everything offends them in life. And all they talk about is what offends them. You ever met somebody like that? You ever marry somebody like that? You okay? Here's my question. Is it heavy? Are you sure? Okay, mm-hmm. you can put it down. Is it heavy? My hands are sweaty. Yes, then you definitely need to put it down. Give these guys a hand and thank you for helping me with my little demonstration. Let me give you a second thing to understand about offenses. You need to be very careful not to pick up another person's offense. All right, follow this. A week and a half ago, Chris and I are at home and I get a telephone call from a mutual friend about a mutual friend and the person who calls me is offended at this person and begins to tell me all the stuff that happened between the two of them and as he's telling me I can feel this thing come on me and here's what the guy really wants he wants me to pick his side in the issue yes or no that's why he's even telling me because there's power in unity let's hate together my stomach begins to hurt the person he's talking about I have a relationship with both of them. They're both important to me. So I just tell him, hey, man, I don't have an answer for you right now. Let me pray about it. So I go to Chris, and I tell her what's going on, and I just said this to her. How do you feel right now? She said, John, she said, my heart's beating fast, and she said, my stomach hurts. And I said, Chris, that's the spirit behind this offense that's not just looking to get this person, but it wants to get anybody who will pick up this offense right now. So I had to call my friend back, and I had to say, listen, right or wrong, here's the real issue. You're wrestling flesh and blood, and you can't see that the devil's behind this right now, trying to get you, trying to get him, trying to get us, and you need to fight against the devil, not against this. And that's how good the devil is. An offense comes, and all we focus on is the thing and not the spirit that's behind it. Two people in a marriage can have the wrong enemy in a marriage fighting each other, And not realizing they both have a common enemy trying to divide them and take them down. And in life, it works that way too. But what about real offenses? What about real offenses? Can somebody do something that really is wrong and you have to make a decision? You bet. But the way you handle that determines whether you live or whether you die. We learned this with a couple one time that we were doing marriage counseling with. We could not get to the bottom of the issue between the two people, so Chris and I came up with this brilliant plan. Chris, you take the woman, I'll take the guy, 
And we'll go into separate rooms and we'll try to get to the bottom of what's going on. So the woman proceeded just to bash the husband and tell Chris everything that's wrong with the guy. And the guy proceeded to bash his wife and tell me everything that was wrong with the woman. And by the time they both got done, they had convinced us. So when Chris and I got back together, I said, the guy's right. She said, the girl's right. And we proceeded to fight for three days over their issue in their marriage. And somewhere in the middle of that, we looked at each other and we said, why are we, this isn't even our issue. And that's exactly how the devil works, yes or no. Offense is never about just the offense. There's a spirit behind it waiting to put its hook in you. And once it gets its hook in you, you'll spend years dealing with the offense and never seeing the spirit. And the devil will rob you. The devil has only three things that he wants to do in your life. Jesus said it this way. The devil has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy you. If he came at us head on, most of us would be aware. But he comes in subtle ways. One of the ways is in a relationship when we don't recognize it's the enemy trying to get into my life, not the issue. The Bible is full of practical principles of how to deal with relationships in life. I mean, it'll say things like, think of others more highly than you think of yourselves. Treat others like you would want to be treated. All of those things we read and we think they're old-fashioned commandments. What they really are is rules so that you can live and relationships can go forward in life. And most of us don't see it for what it is. We take the bait. We find ourselves stuck. That's the third one. We're good. Then the offense gets in and you're bad. And last but not least, if you go for it, dude, here's what happens to you. You get stuck. First they're amazed at Jesus. Then they're offended at Jesus. And the outcome is God himself couldn't do anything great in their lives because of their offense. And I would just say to you simply this. If you live your life with that offense, with that thing that you just are like, I can't forgive it, I can't let go of it, I can't move beyond it. If you live your life that way, eventually what happens is you're the one that pays the price because you'll get stuck. You'll pray and nothing happens. You'll lay your hands on people and see no result. You'll say all the words and there'll be no power. Here's what Jesus said. If you're at the altar worshiping God and about to give your offering and you remember that you have a fence in your heart towards someone, leave your offering at the altar, take off and go settle the issue and then come back and God will hear your prayer. I write the message and I prayed a dangerous prayer. I said to God, I don't want to be a teacher of the word. I want to be a doer of the word because it's real easy to teach stuff and not do stuff. So I said this dangerous prayer, God, is there anybody I need to get anything right with? And God answered that prayer. And I didn't really want him to answer that prayer because the person that came to my mind, in my mind, that person owes me the apology. I don't owe them the apology. And so the person comes to my mind, and my first is like, 
God, no, give me somebody else, not that person. And stays with me, and I wrestle with God for a little while. And so I said, okay, what do you want me to do in this situation? And the Lord, Lord reminded me of a thing that this person likes, and he said, go buy them this thing and call them and give it to them. I'm like, God, this isn't going to change. This is not, this won't work. Just leaves it there. So I went and I bought it. I called the person and said, hey, man, I've been thinking about you. God put you on my heart, and I've got something for you. Can we meet up? And the person says, you know what? I can't come to you. You need to come to me. Oh, dude, that fried my potatoes like you can't. I'm like, oh. So I rolled my window down, threw it out the window, and went home. Said, forget it. I said, okay. So I went to where they were. I went inside. I just said, look. Whatever else it is, it's just simply this. The Lord put you on my heart, and I want you to know I was thinking about you and praying for you, and the Lord wanted me just to give you this right here. Give it to him. Now, here's the truth. Nothing happened. They didn't move one iota. But when I turned around to leave, guess what? Dude, I was free. Now, I'm not afraid to run into the person. In fact, now I hope I do run into the person. (laughs) Instead of leaving with this thing between us that was undone, unspoken. Here's really where I was. God, I'm really open if you want to bring them to apologize to me. But you know, believers sometimes have to make the first move. And even if it gets the result we want or we don't want, here's the best part about it. I get to live. I get the miraculous. God can move in my heart. Hey, look at me real quick. Look at me. What's the price of God's peace worth in your life. How much would you pay to have God's peace? What would you pay to be full of joy? What would you pay not to have bitterness be the only thing that you deal with? What would you pay in order to feel the presence of God just move all around you? The price of peace is to be willing to operate in grace. And even when another person doesn't move, can you, so that you can live? How much do you want the miraculous in your life? Does it make any sense? Let me give you three options. You get, you get three choices today. All right, the first choice says you can live in denial. And some people are going to hear this message, and the thing that, You'll think about, you'll tell yourself, they did it. They're wrong. I don't need to do anything about this. Pastor, you make me mad when you say things like this because you don't understand. So you can walk out of here and live in denial that you don't have to do anything about it. Or you can live in offense. You can be a person who's just so twisted and tied up and wrecked by it that it's just eating away at your very soul. And you do get the choice. You can live in offense. Or I can give you God's option for your life. You can live in freedom. You don't have to live in denial and you don't have to live in offense. You can live in freedom. And the price of freedom is do what God tells you to do. So I've been placing myself in the foyer after the services so I can talk to people and pray for them. And it's amazing when I teach something like this that it comes back to me so quickly. So I had a lady who just said, 
I got an issue with my dad that's ongoing forever. And I can't get him to do anything about it. This isn't about getting someone else to do something about it. Do you want to live? Church, look at me. Do you want to live? That's what I'm asking you. Do you want to live? The gospel doesn't change the past. I can't make a dad or a spouse or a kid or a parent or a business partner or a situation change if it happened in the past. But here's what I can do. I can talk to you about the health that God wants you to have in your life so you can go forward and beyond it. Do you want to live? And what do you do with this message? So Jesus, I just ask right now that you would um, totally prepare our hearts. Prepare our hearts for the ministry that you want to do right now, for the opportunity, Father, to live. Got so many people who love you and who call on your name and who pray and who long, long, long for you to answer their prayers. So many people, Father, get so deceived over this issue and they find themselves so tied up in life and they're like, God, do something about this. And the truth of the matter is God himself can't move when you tie yourself up with these things right here. It's a trap of the enemy. Even if you can't make the other person do what's right, can you be a person who experiences forgiveness and experiences grace and mercy so that you can live? I believe that that's true. Pastor Marcus and I met and talked about this. I feel like Marcus has the word for what God would have you do to find healing, to find ministry right now. So all I'm doing is asking you to open your heart, and I want you to listen to what Marcus has to say. The book of Colossians, chapter 3, that we read at the beginning of this service, goes on to say in verse 12, it says, Since God chose you to be holy people whom he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You must make allowance for each other's faults and forgive the person who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And the most important piece of clothing you must wear is love. Love is what binds us all together in perfect harmony. Then let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. One of the greatest measurements and barometers in our lives that we can use to say, is there offense that I'm holding on to, unforgiveness that I have in my heart, is whether that there's peace in our lives, peace in the relationships, peace in the way that we operate and walk around, or is there a lack of peace? Because we serve the God of peace, the God of harmony, the one who desires to bring that level of peace in your lives, just as Paul wrote in this letter to the Colossians. But when there is unforgiveness and there is bitterness, there are things that we harbor as offense in our hearts towards others. It robs the peace that God desires to bring to us in our lives. And so I want to ask you, do you have peace in your life? 
you have peace in your relationships? Because if you don't, then I think maybe the next thing that you need to ask is, is there an offense then that is causing this lack of peace in my life? It's not going to be a blanket statement to say that every time you find lack of peace, there's an offense. But I will tell you, it's probably one of the easiest things to pick up in life is offense that will lead to lack of peace. So often those two things are tied together. There's not peace in this relationship. There's not peace that you have about this relationship because of the fact that there is an offense that's being held. Now, I want to let you know something that's really, really interesting. In a moment, we're going to pray, and we're just going to open our hearts for those who desire to and our minds to hear from God if there's an offense that He wants to point out. And if you're not ready to go there, then don't go there. Because the worst thing that could happen is for you to be aware of an offense and even what you need to do about it and do nothing. Because now you are deadly responsible for the lack of peace that is in your life. And you have authority and control in that. But here's what's amazing, is it does not, and so often does not require anyone else to do anything to bring that peace. It doesn't require somebody to come and ask for you to forgive them, to say sorry for what I did, or I apologize that you're walking through this. It doesn't require that. In fact, Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 8, he says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. He doesn't say as far as it depends on someone else apologizing to you, live at peace with all people. So some of you are going to find today that maybe God does speak something to you about a relationship where there's offense and a a relationship where there's unforgiveness. And some of you, you may have an action point that says you need to go and make things right with this person as best as you can. Give them a gift, like Pastor John said. Say sorry, whatever it may be. But I think there's also a large portion of you who may hear something from God, and all he says to you is you need to let it go. Get rid of it. Dump the rock out. Stop carrying the offense. Stop holding on to the unforgiveness. Live at peace because it depends on you. Who cares what that other person does? It doesn't matter. They cannot rob your peace anymore. But it's your choice to do that or to not do that. So don't ask the question from God unless you're willing to not feel better because they said sorry, not make things right because they've tried to reconcile, but say, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. As far as it depends on me, I want to live at peace without the offense, without the unforgiveness. And if you're willing to do that, God is willing to speak that to you and give you the wisdom of what to do to navigate in that situation. So would you pray with me very quickly? Father, we come to you believing, trusting, having full faith that you are the God of peace. You are the God of hope. You are the God of life. You're the God that desires to bring harmony in our lives and in our relationships, Lord God. And so often this deadly unforgiveness and offense that we hold on to, it doesn't just hurt the relationships, Lord, but it robs our lives of peace. We want to hear from you. If there's anything that we are holding on to, Lord God, we want to hear from you what that is. Church, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I want you, if you are bold enough, to just ask the Lord very quickly, is there an offense or are there offenses that I am holding in my heart 
that are robbing my life of the peace you have promised. You don't need to dig. Your heavenly Father is faithful. He will speak to you. And if he is speaking to you an area of life, a relationship that maybe there is a lack of peace because there is unforgiveness there. There's unresolve. There's offense. Then the next question you need to ask God is, God, how do I handle this? Maybe there is an action point. Maybe there is something that you need to do. Maybe you just need to let it go. Maybe you need to get into a room and you need to verbally speak out without anybody else around that you forgive regardless the cost. You forgive regardless of the reason that you hold on to that, regardless of the pain, regardless of how right you are, regardless of what it costs, the price that you are willing to pay for that freedom and that peace is everything because it's the only way that you're going to have the abundant life God has called you to have. I felt like the Lord said to me this weekend as well that there is a, there's a group of people that maybe you, did, you can't even fully track through the uh, process of hearing from God when it comes to unforgiveness and offense because the person you're offended with is not somebody that you're in relationship with and outside of your own body. The person that you're offended with, the person that you have not forgiven is yourself. I believe that there are people in this room that are listening to this very message that what God is saying to you is you do not have peace because you have not forgiven yourself. And the word of God says in Colossians chapter 3 that your heavenly father has already forgiven you. Who else holds an offense against you? No one. So let it go. Forgive yourself. Release the offense so that you can live in peace. That doesn't make it right. It doesn't make everything okay. It doesn't, it doesn't make it perfect and act like it didn't happen. But God knows He's forgiven you. It's time to forgive yourself. Let it go. Dump the rocks. Release the burden. And walk in freedom and peace. God, we are so thankful that you are faithful. We are so thankful for your forgiveness, God, that you have provided the example for us of what true forgiveness looks like. Lord, even in the filth of all of our sin and all of the things that we have done, Lord God, you hold no offense against us because of your son Jesus and the blood that he shed for us. May you teach us how to release the offenses and unforgiveness that we have held on to, Lord, in our lives so that we can have that same peace. And may we each have the boldness to walk out whatever it is you tell us. We say yes.
We pray this in the precious and the holy name of Jesus. Amen.